The shale revolution has profoundly changed global oil markets. This in turn has had an important effect on oil producing states and their strategy to continue to produce rent from natural resources. Today we are speaking with Giacomo Luciani, a creator of the rentier state theory, the scientific advisor for the International Energy Programme at Sciences Po, and one of the world's foremost experts in energy politics in the Gulf. We discuss the impact of shale on global oil markets, developments in Iran, and the motivations behind the IPO of Saudi Aramco. We also discuss strategies for decarbonization of oil and the progress that Saudi Arabia has made in diversifying their economy. I am Paul David Evans and this is the Sciences Po Energy Podcast. Good afternoon, Giacomo Luciani. Welcome to the Sciences Po Energy Podcast. Obviously, we all know you as the head of the energy program here at Sciences Po, but what did you do before you came to teach at Sciences Po? Well, uh, I like to say that my career uh, has been an exercise in trespassing, passing from uh, industry to consultation to academia to research. I've done many things, uh, and uh, I hope that this uh, contributes to what I have to tell you. You're known as one of the originators of the rentier state theory. So would you tell us a bit about what is a rentier state? Yes, uh, the rentier state, uh, uh, my interest in the rentier state uh, uh, arises uh, uh, or arose because it's now a long time ago, uh, out of uh, looking at uh, the political developments and the uh, economic developments, especially in the Gulf countries, and asking myself whether the regimes uh, in uh, the Gulf countries could be uh, stable, uh, last over time or not. And the rentier state is a concept based on uh, the source of revenue of the state. Uh, whenever a state derives uh, the f- essence of its revenue, of, of its wherewithal, from uh, a rent accruing from uh, the rest of the world, Uh, and not from taxation of its own uh, uh, people, uh, I think uh, the political dynamics uh, are influenced, profoundly influenced by this uh, consideration. And so uh, this uh, changes uh, the uh, expectation about uh, the future dynamics in in this uh, kind of states. Now, uh, the rentier states uh, have a history in the sense that uh, not all states were in the same condition at the moment when oil uh, started to be produced. I say oil because uh, although oil is not necessarily the only source of rent, it's by far the most important. So uh, if you are uh, a democracy, and at some point uh, you discover oil, it's unlikely that you will cease being a democracy. So uh, Norway is uh, potentially in many ways a rentier state. Uh, It has deliberately avoided being a rentier state by confining the oil rent into a sovereign fund and uh, drawing only a, a very small uh, percentage, 3% uh, per year uh, of uh, the fund to make it available to the government budget. 
By contrast, how much would a country like Saudi Arabia, the quintessential rentier state, draw? In in Saudi Arabia or Kuwait uh, or Abu Dhabi, uh, all uh, the oil rent accrues to the uh, uh, government budget, and then maybe it is destined uh, to reserves or uh, to a sovereign fund. In fact, until now, very little to a sovereign fund uh, in, in Saudi Arabia more so in uh, countries like Abu Dhabi or, or Qatar. But these are countries that do not rely on taxation of their own uh, citizens. There is no income tax. Uh, there is uh, uh, limited corporate tax. And uh, it is only recently that a value-added tax at a very low uh, percentage has been introduced. So until now, these countries, uh, the state in these countries has not been supported by the people. It has been supported by revenue accruing from the rest of the world. So historically, the decline of oil has been predicted due to supply-side problems. But now it seems increasingly clear that this will not be the case. Indeed, resor- oil reserves are higher than ever. There is much more consensus, though, that there will be a peak in oil demand, although there's uncertainty as to when this peak will be and how steep the decline will be following this. But how does this change from relative scarcity to relative abundance of oil affect rentier states? Well, in fact, I'm not uh, uh, 100% sure that uh, what you just said is is correct. Uh, yes, in the mm, widespread perception we have been from uh, worrying from uh, uh, peak oil supply to uh, worrying uh, to about peak oil demand but neither the the peak oil supply nor peak oil demand are correct uh, ways of uh, looking at the situation that is because uh, there is not a an absolute maximum supply and there will not be an absolute uh, maximum demand independently of price. Both supply and demand respond to prices. So if uh, if you have a situation in which there is excess supply, which is what uh, looks more likely at the moment, okay, prices will be low. And if prices are low, demand will not decline. Okay. Uh, in fact, it's still increasing. And uh, the expectation that it might uh, decline in the future has to be rooted in some uh, market analysis because it is the the way of functioning of the market that uh, to each shock in one direction there is a counterbalancing shock uh, in in the opposite direction. So if we have uh, measures introduced in some countries to uh, forcefully uh, reduce uh, demand for oil, for example, banning uh, diesel cars or banning internal combustion engine cars altogether in certain in certain countries. This will translate into a lower price for oil globally, and that will stimulate demand for oil uh, in other countries that do not adopt the same regulations or demand for oil for other uses that uh, is not uh, private transportation. After all, cars account for only 25% of uh, oil demand in the transportation sector. So there is plenty that can expand uh, uh, for other purposes. I see. But do you think 
therefore that there will be an environment of, uh, let's say, lower oil prices over the next 10, 20 years. It is possible that we might have uh, an environment of uh, lower oil prices because uh, oil is relatively uh, abundant. That will depend in practice uh, on how much investment is Uh, devoted to uh, and allocated to developing the available resources. There is a difference between the availability of resources and the availability of supply uh, at any moment in time on the market because, uh, you know, the resources might be there, but if there is not enough investment to bring those resources uh, to the market, uh, supply into the market might not be sufficient. So uh, it is important that uh, companies, uh, international as well as national oil companies, uh, continue to invest in this um, uh, industry in producing oil. Uh, And if they do so, uh, it is quite possible that the price of oil uh, will uh, be relatively low. The cost of producing oil has not uh, increased uh, significantly. And we are constantly dealing with uh, new uh, technological innovation that has the objective and and result of reducing the cost of producing oil from known uh, uh, resources. Sure. So I get the impression that you don't think that that oil prices will be low enough to cause any fiscal problems for a country like Saudi Arabia. Well, prices of oil might be low. The cost of producing oil uh, purely and simply in Saudi Arabia is very low. So there will always be a a significant margin in between the cost of taking one barrel out of the ground and the price at which this barrel can be sold uh, on the international market. The cost of taking one marginal barrel out of the ground in Saudi Arabia may be of the order of, say, five to seven dollars. Uh, and uh, if we speak of low oil prices, we may be speaking of prices of 50 to 70. That's 10 times sure. <laughs> the cost of production. So uh, the the rent uh, margin still is very significant. Now, I believe that Saudi Arabia should, and in general, the oil producing countries should invest in decarbonizing the, their, uh, their oil and that may increase the cost of production and may increase the cost of uh, producing something which is acceptable as a decarbonized fuel uh, by the rest of the world. What, what exactly do you mean by decarbonized oil? Uh, decarbonizing the oil means, uh, in essence, producing something that is a fuel but does not contain CO2. The most likely candidate for that is hydrogen. You can uh, transform oil either in something which is not a fuel, uh, not meant to be burned, lubricants or petrochemical products, uh, or, uh, you know, if it has to be a fuel, uh, it can be treated in such a way that it is transformed into another carrier of energy, such as hydrogen, uh, and uh, the CO2 is captured and and uh, sequestered or or reutilized for other purposes. Do you believe that because you think it's simply a a good business strategy to decarbonize oil? I believe that it is very unlikely that we will move completely away from uh, uh, liquid fuels, okay, Uh, or for that matter, gas. 
there are uh, uh, certain characteristics of uh, liquid fuels and uh, to some extent also gas that are valuable even in an environment in which uh, renewable energy sources have uh, uh, much uh, expanded and you have availability of uh, other sources of uh, energies, notably electricity, for example, nuclear. Uh, the fact is that uh, liquid uh, fuels uh, have much much greater uh, transportability, uh, storability, and also energy density. The energy density of oil is especially uh, significant. The energy density of liquid hydrogen is uh, significantly less, but nevertheless much higher than the energy density of a battery. Uh, the energy density of a battery is really very small. And so there are uses in which uh, it will be preferable to use liquid hydrogen rather than uh, batteries. Sure, interesting. Uh, so this process of converting hydrocarbon to pure hydrogen, how does it work and how energy intensive is it? This is a technology that has been in use for ages. It's called steam reforming. You can do steam reforming for methane, which basically means exposing uh, uh, methane to steam at very high temperature, at significant temperature. And in that environment, uh, the, the carbon molecule is separated from the hydrogen molecule, and the carbon molecule mixes with uh, the oxygen uh, in, uh, in the steam, and what is left is pure hydrogen, okay? This has been uh, known, and it's normal practice in uh, in a refinery uh, where uh, hydrogen is required uh, all the time. Uh, most petrochemical processes uh, begin with the, the first stage is the steam reforming of uh, a hydrocarbon molecule. One of the major developments in the world of oil in the past maybe even 10 years is the creation of shale. Indeed, the U.S. has moved from being an oil importer to an oil exporter. How long will this last? There is great uncertainty about this, primarily because, by nature, oil uh, uh, in shale or oil in any tight, uh, non-permeable uh, rock uh, does not dis- distribute un- uniformly in the rock formation. Okay, So uh, uh, what may happen is that you drill in one point and you find... Uh, that uh, there is a lot of oil trapped into that rock and then <laughs> you n- drill not far, not too far and you find that there isn't all that much oil uh, uh, trapped in the rock uh, simply because oil, uh, given the nature uh, of the rock that is not permeable, cannot travel from one point to, to, to the other within uh, the layer of rock. So basically, uh, having said that, uh, the expectation is that shale uh, oil uh, production in the United States will um, uh, increase until uh, the late uh, decade of the 2020s uh, and then uh, plateau or, or decrease. Obviously, because each uh, well in, uh, in the shale has limited productivity and uh, tends to decline rather more rapidly than a conventional field, the more it grows, the more it is difficult to keep it at the same level. You, know, you have to constantly drill. It's like uh, running on a treadmill. You, know, you have to constantly drill. 
in order to uh, maintain the level of production. But uh, having said that, you know, shale does not exist only in the United States. Yes. Shale uh, exists elsewhere in the world. Uh, and uh, shale is not the only form of non-conventional oil. We have uh, heavy uh, oils, uh, bitumens in, uh, in Venezuela, in uh, Canada. At the moment, for example, people are not talking too much about Venezuela because of the uh, sorry political conditions and economic conditions of, of the country. Uh, but the uh, extent of uh, resources there is is very, very significant. Yes. So at some point in time, they will uh, find a way to the market. Sure, yeah, of course. But uh, there is something, I suppose, which is particular about the U.S. in terms of either its legal environments, its infrastructure, or its geology, which means that it's easier than other places to extract uh, shale oil. It is uh, uh, easier to quickly ramp up uh, production, okay? And there is no uh, um, limit to, to... The government cannot intervene to uh, openly... Uh, say that uh, uh, production should not uh, be allowed to grow uh, as rapidly as it is growing. In fact, the U.S. government is not interested in limiting (laughs) the growth uh, of uh, shale production. It is normally other oil-producing countries that are worried or used to be worried about the future, used to be in the frame of mind of saying that we need to keep our reserves for future generations uh, so the oil should not be drawn down too quickly this was one of the key revendications of opec back in the late um, 1960s and it is at the origin of the shift of uh, bargaining power from the seven sisters to opec at the beginning in 1969 and 70 but today, when uh, many people are saying that oil will lose economic value into the future, something I don't believe, but, you know, many people are saying so. So the incentive for uh, the oil-producing countries to keep oil in the ground for a, a very long term, okay, is, uh, has uh, disappeared. It used to be that Saudi Arabia had uh, a strategy of keeping at least enough reserves to be able to keep on producing uh, for 50 years at the going level, okay? If if you think of that, 50 years down the road, uh, towards the end of this uh, century, uh, we don't know that oil uh, will still be uh, as valuable as it is today. We have no idea. It might be more valuable, it might be less valuable. So... In somewhere, let's say, like, for example, Argentina has very significant shale reserves. Do you think that they will manage to get a similar level of production to the United States in the next five to ten years? I don't know. There again, you know, Argentina is a country that has uh, huge potential in in so many areas. Uh, Argentina is a country that has potential in renewables, uh, hydro, wind. It has potential in fossil fuels. It has so many possibilities and Historically, it has not been terribly successful in uh, exploiting all the possibility that it has. So uh, we will see. What, what do you think the break-even of shale is in the United States? 
Well, there again, it varies a lot. Uh, we, we have uh, stories of uh, smaller companies that are going uh, bankrupt at the moment and uh, stories of uh, some uh, more important companies that are investing heavily. The uh, acquisition uh, of Anadarko on the part of Occidental is a demonstration of the fact that uh, Occidental at least uh, sees a bright future for shale oil in uh, uh, in the United States and uh, believes that they will be capable of uh, further reducing uh, their cost of production and, and uh, cashing in significant profits. Now, not everybody agrees, you know. In fact, uh, you know, some, some uh, commentators have been skeptical about this. Uh, so uh, this is something that uh, uh, only experience will be able to tell. Sure. What's your opinion on the acquisition? Was it a good deal or not? Uh, I don't know. I really don't know. It has uh, very much to do about uh, details of where the, the acreage is located, uh, to what extent it is possible to uh, achieve some economies of scale by jointly managing uh, uh, different uh, acreages, uh, different wells, and so on and so forth. It's something that requires uh, in-depth, uh, inside knowledge of th- of the business, which I uh, don't have. Sure. Okay. So something, I suppose, the most interesting thing going on in the world of oil at the moment is around Iran. So can you explain us a bit what's happening um, in in Iran right now. One should perhaps uh, possibly start from uh, asking what's happening in the White House, and, sure. and that's not always easy to, uh, to guess. It is not clear what the US administration wants to get from Iran, uh, and it's not clear how it intends to pursue whatever goal, uh, goal uh, they have. Um, uh, if the goal is uh, to destroy the Islamic Republic, uh, I think this is very difficult to achieve, and uh, it won't be achieved. In terms of oil supplies, uh, we have many times experienced uh, uh, conflicts uh, in, uh, in the Gulf. Uh, the uh, Iraq-Iran war uh, went on for eight years. Uh, it uh, included uh, threats of uh, uh, attacks to tankers uh, in the Gulf. And uh, nevertheless, uh, oil kept on uh, flowing. So uh, I don't think there will be a major impact of uh, the uh, current uh, political tensions. And even if they escalate into military tensions, uh, there will not be a very serious impact on uh, uh, oil prices and the availability of oil. Mm-hmm. Indeed, there has been a very measured reaction in oil markets from these new developments. For good reasons, because there is uh, a lot of oil uh, around, because we uh, sit, we have a system of, of uh, strategic stocks under the International Energy Agency. These stocks are large and uh, uh, they have become more abundant uh, 
relatively speaking, now that uh, the import dependence of the United States especially has been reduced. In general, uh, demand for oil in Europe is not increasing. It's increasing very fast elsewhere in the world. So there is as much probability of an increase in uh, oil production as there is uh, in, a, in a decrease. How much oil do, does Iran export at the moment and how much oil do they need to export in order to, to survive? Iranian oil exports have uh, already decreased. Uh, the question is uh, how much uh, they will be able to continue to export. And the answer to that, uh, I don't uh, dare to uh, propose. In general, what we see is that sanctions, especially unilateral sanctions such as those uh, imposed by the United States, without the approval or support of uh, other major importing uh, areas such as Europe, China, India. Sanctions are uh, relatively effective in the very short term when they are imposed soon after. But uh, if they are uh, extended over time, the potential importers find ways to uh, move, maneuver around them, okay? Uh, especially because normally the potential exporter, in this case Iran, will uh, possibly be willing to discount its oil so in order to maintain access to the market. So, so there is always uh, a point uh, of equilibrium <laughs> in the sense that at some reduced price, Iranian oil will find access to the market. Uh, I'm convinced about that. Sure. So you would say essentially the the power of the the sanctions from the United States is almost is very negligible in terms of any any real political I mean, change. Uh, I, I wouldn't push it that far. It certainly is uh, potentially uh, capable of imposing substantial sacrifices to the Iranian people. So in that respect, uh, you know, it may be very damaging for Iran. But uh, this will not cause the collapse of the uh, Islamic Republic in Iran. It has never been the case that uh, sanctions uh, have been sufficient to cause a, a collapse of an existing regime, e even in the case of Iraq. Iraq uh, was under sanctions for a very extended period of time. And yet, uh, you know, in the end, regime change and uh, getting rid of Saddam as requested, demanded the physical intervention on the terrain and, you know, marching on Baghdad. Uh, I don't think the United States alone uh, will march on, uh, on Tehran. Sure. That's not something that we are going to see. Uh, now, I may be wrong on this, but uh, I don't think it's a realistic uh, um, perspective, considering that there is very significant uh, opposition to that, uh, not only in from Russia and China and India, but also from Europe. I mean, the United States on, on this are utterly isolated. They are uh, supported only by Saudi Arabia, and so that's not uh, much. I have one final question. So why did the Aramco IPO not succeed? The Aramco IPO was um, 
conceived as a way to uh, diversify in terms of portfolio the assets in the hands of the Saudi government. The reasoning behind it uh, is that the Saudi government uh, is uh, potentially sitting on a huge wealth, which is the company and, and the oil in the ground. Okay, And uh, what is being suggested is that this wealth, uh, rather than being invested exclusively in oil in the ground, should be invested in a variety of assets, uh, notably high-technology companies outside of Saudi Arabia itself. Now, this reasoning is, uh, in my opinion, fundamentally faulted uh, in the sense that Saudi Aramco is not just uh, a, a financial asset. It's much more than that. So. Uh, there is a tension in between treating it as a financial asset and treating it as a, a national uh, tool for diversification of the real economy, not financial, you know, yes. uh, diversification of uh, industry and diversification of uh, uh, manufacturing activities in, uh, in uh, Saudi Arabia itself. So the IPO was announced that... Uh, uh, low level, only 5% of, uh, of the capital of uh, Saudi Aramco. It required uh, a lot of changes in Saudi Aramco, some of which have taken place, disclosures, uh, greater transparency and so on, which might be said to be good. But in the end, uh, uh, you know, it exposes uh, uh, the government to a market valuation which may not uh, coincide with uh, the government expectations, sure. especially since the government was uh, went public uh, with uh, a tentative uh, valuation of, of the company, which uh, was found uh, excessive by many commentators. So it was exposed to uh, not being able to uh, achieve the financial uh, benefit uh, that they were expecting. Okay. Sure. So you don't think it was a good strategy to try to go to an IPO? We have uh, the experience of other national oil companies that have been partially uh, uh, floated on the stock market. Uh, this has happened with uh, what is today called Equinor, or used to be called Statoil, the Norwegian uh, national oil company. It has happened uh, with uh, Petrobras in Brazil. I dare say that uh, we have not seen uh, a major change in the behavior or uh, outlook of these companies following this partial privatization. In all cases, the government, the state, remains by far the major shareholder, and the other shareholders are not really very influential in, uh, in the management of the company. If the strategy of going for an IPO isn't a good one, then what is the best strategy in order to diversify the real economy in Saudi Arabia? I think Saudi Arabia has made very substantial progress towards diversifying the real economy. Their progress uh, in establishing a a world-class petrochemical industry is undeniable and is continuing. And many of the projects that have been undertaken in the last few years are just now becoming uh, coming online and so trade statistics are only now beginning to reflect uh, some of the major investment that has uh, taken place in addition saudi arabia has uh, 
other mineral important mineral resources so projects for the production of uh, bauxite and aluminium will certainly flourish and and uh, have a substantial impact even on on the statistics even so you know if you consider the uh, uh, index of uh, economic complexity that is uh, regularly published uh, and maintained uh, uh, by Harvard and MIT jointly, you will find that Saudi Arabia is uh, in a very good position in international comparison. Uh, it's uh, just, uh, if I remember correctly, just after uh, Russia in terms of uh, economic complexity in a much better position than countries such as Australia, for example. Sure, which, uh, e- economic complexity measures what e- exactly? Pardon? It, it measures how, how diversified the economy is. Yes, the, the index of economic complexity measures not only how diversified the, the economy is, but also, so to speak, the quality of diversification, uh, whether the, the country specializes in uh, uh, exporting products that uh, not many other countries are capable of exporting. So, so uh, it is... Um, a measure of um, competitiveness, including of uh, knowledge content uh, of uh, the products exported by that country. And it has uh, a strong correlation with GDP growth and also other positive uh, uh, economic indicators. Sure. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Giacomo. It's very interesting. Welcome. Thank you for listening to the Sciences Po Energy Podcast. Recorded and produced in Paris by Paul David Evans with help from Sirvash Barthodar. If you like the podcast, then feel free to leave a rating on iTunes or whatever you are listening. And if you're an undergraduate student and you're interested in energy, then have a look at the program offered by Sciences Po. 